traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. After months of bloody fighting and static stalemate, Ukraine has pulled off a remarkable turnaround. Ukrainian troops are claiming some major victories this weekend as they fight to take back... A stunning retreat by Russia overnight as Ukrainian forces claw back parts of the south and east of their... Ukrainian forces have liberated from the Russians people in more than 30 settlements in the northeast region of Kharkiv. Its army is piercing through Russian lines and sweeping out invaders in the northeast Kharkiv province. In Kherson in the south, soldiers are grinding away at Russian positions. This week, as he watched the sky blue and sunflower yellow banner being hoisted above the recaptured city of Izium, Volodymyr Zelensky vowed that soon enough, Ukrainians would see their flag raised across the whole country. We know that truth is on our side, though, so it means that we will come. I don't know when, and nobody knows when, but we have plans, so we'll come because, because it's our land and it's our people. That's why we'll come. Since Vladimir Putin ordered his troops across the border in February, very little has gone to plan. Now, Ukraine's counteroffensive has put the Kremlin on the back foot. Morale is low, Russian soldiers deserting their posts in droves. Abandoned tanks litter the landscape. It's still too soon to call a Ukrainian victory. Russia controls a fifth of the country's territory. But it does look as if the tide has turned. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, could Vladimir Putin lose the war in Ukraine? Later in the show, I'll speak to Alexander Gabuev, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, about how Ukraine's gains are being received in Russia and what it might mean for Mr. Putin. But my first guest is a veteran of the theatre of war, retired four-star US General Wesley Clark. He served in the army for 38 years, and from 1997 to 2000, General Clark was a NATO Supreme Allied Commander during the Kosovo War and the aerial bombing of Serbia. General Wesley Clark, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Now, Ukraine's counteroffensive marks the most dramatic moment in the war since Russia abandoned its attempt to seize Kyiv at the end of March. What was your personal reaction to hearing of the news of the successes of the counteroffensive? I wasn't surprised because this is the third phase of the war. The first phase being the failed Russian attack on Kyiv. The second phase being their very prolonged, difficult, and ultimately not very successful effort in Donbass. And um, the Russian forces basically expended most of its offensive capability. And at the same time, the Ukrainians have husbanded 
the ability to counterattack. They've received much more munitions and some high-tech weaponry from the West. So yeah, this is the right time to do it. I think what's interesting is that they've actually been able to operate a two-pronged counteroffensive, one in the South and one in the Northeast. And the one in the Northeast, of course, hit very soft and disorganized Russian resistance, and it rolled forward. But I commend the Ukrainians on the fact that they haven't become so exuberant that they have rushed forward pell-mell and lost their ability and their own cohesive ability to handle a potential counterattack. In the South, this is a reconnaissance-led attack. I'd say the closest analogy to it is really the way the United States and its allies handled ISIS in 2014, 15, 16. Step by step, pick, 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 find your target, strike your target, move forward cautiously, protect your force, don't expend your combat power, use firepower first. And um, this seems to be working. You were in Kiev recently as this turn of events unfolded, and some of your statements there sounded rather cautious about heralding this as a major breakthrough or perhaps a decisive signal about which way the war is going. You said something like you have to respect the adversary, you have to be careful. So are there factors that you think more optimistic analyses might be misreading or maybe underweighting? Well, I think all of the exuberance that has been shown in the press is fine, as long as it doesn't affect the decision-making in the military in Ukraine. So um, go ahead, celebrate, wave the flags, break out the champagne. But for the people who are leading the battle on the ground in Kiev, be very cautious because this war is a long way from over. It's only over when Putin decides he can't win. And um, we haven't persuaded him of that yet. Let me imagine that you're uh, commanding Ukrainian forces now. What would you be doing and how much would you be securing the land that you've regained and pushing for more? And at what tempo, just reflecting on what you said a moment ago about the danger of going too fast pell-mell and finding that in the optimism and the momentum, you've moved too fast. So let's put you back into uniform for a moment. If I were in Ukraine, if I were a tactical commander, I'd be preparing defensive positions around Izium and the uh, and Kupiansk and as far as they've gone east and be preparing for a counterattack. If I were a slightly higher level commander, I'd be pushing resupplies and replacements forward. You can't do an attack like this without having taken losses. People can only stay awake for about 72 hours before individuals become, let's say, combat ineffective. So when you're in the offensive like this, it's an exhilarating experience at all levels. So your adrenaline's flowing, you take risks, you stay up. When it's over, depression sets in, fatigue You've got to have a rebuilding and restructuring period. That should be happening right now. The question is whether there are reinforcing units at the operational level can be brought forward to, if you want to extend the attack further, give these folks that did the initial three days of effort a chance to recover. And that's the North. And in the South, I'd be pick, pick, picking my way, continuing to hamper the logistics. Remember this um, impact on morale and the expenditure of Russian logistics is cumulative. Courage in soldiers is a function of the losses they see. And so the longer they stay, the more losses they take and the more demoralization can set in. So don't be in such a hurry. You have the momentum. Now, at the very highest level, what I'd be doing is screaming for 
more Western assistance. Why? Because you proved you can use it. Look, we can use it. The best way to finish this war is now, not a year from now, not two years from now. But the only way you can finish it conclusively is the Russians leave. Let me talk to you a bit about the situation in Russia and the Russian army as you see it. It's a truism that it's one of the most powerful in the world in the run-up to the conflict. And before we all knew the scale of it, we were writing pieces about the investment in the Russian military and in its technological weapons capacity. How much do you think the recent turn of events has changed the view of the efficacy of the Russian army? Well, I think certainly the world sees that the Russian army is not what it was supposed to be. You know, Russia gained a great reputation in the Second World War, and uh, they've lived on that reputation for 70 years. That reputation was born on the deaths of millions of poorly trained, poorly equipped soldiers who were forced into the offensive operations in 1941, 42, 43 at gunpoint. And then, of course, as the Russian military machine got rolling, Stuffed, by the way, by U.S. support, we helped build that Russian military machine. But unfortunately, the Russians, they have a sort of almost polar opposite approach to the military that we in the West have. We believe that individual soldiers' lives, they're our greatest resource. We do everything to protect our soldiers. We train our soldiers and we spend a lot of money on it. We really pay attention to it and have perfected it in a way that the Russians haven't. Well, I don't want the Russians to learn the lesson. They think the secret is map maneuvers and briefings and high-technology weapons. And yes, you've got to have appropriate high-technology. The MLRS has made a huge difference in this war. But what's really made the difference in the war is the Ukrainian courage, determination, and reliance on the creativity, mission sense of the individual soldier. That's the difference. A few days ago, Ukraine's Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov warned that a Russian counterattack might well be on the way, do you think there is the likelihood of retaliation? And what would the risks be if Mr. Putin did decide that he had no option now but to escalate? Well, look, I think it's going to be very difficult for the Russians to mount a counterattack at this point at anything other than a couple of battalions. We know they've been trying to form a what was equivalent to the Cold War Third Shock Army with the equivalent of 20 to 40 battalion tactical groups but it hasn't come together the way they wanted it to because they can't get the individual replacements in because these people can't be trained. And because modern Russian equipment is not like the T-34 tank, you can't simply put a tractor driver in it and say, okay, uh, go ahead, point the gun and pull the trigger. So I think a significant Russian counterattack is months away, weeks at least. So that would indicate that the Russians would probably be looking at something when the ground freezes. And what about the nuclear option? Do you think Mr. Putin will be weighing up whether a tactical nuclear strike may be the way to go? And how should the West respond if we think that he could be on this path as he gets cornered and as the war doesn't go his way? The risk surely rises for him as well. During the Cold War in my military capacities as a staff officer, we planned various tactical nuclear strikes as part of our training exercises. So we did a lot of work on these things, and um, we didn't find them decisive, and I wouldn't find a Russian tactical nuclear strike battlefield decisive. Uh, Would it shock world opinion? Yes. Would uh, publics in Italy, France be horrified? No doubt about it. Its effect would be political. 
output in terms of battlefield effect? Would the Ukrainians suddenly say, oh my goodness, they've dropped a nuclear weapon on Izium. Oh, they've killed a, a thousand of our soldiers. Izium's destroyed. Okay, let's surrender. No, they're not going to surrender. And Putin knows it. Furthermore, he knows he's going to be in even deeper trouble if he starts using nuclear weapons. Because China, and he's meeting with President Xi Jinping this week, China doesn't like losers. And what they don't want to get is uh, dragged into a conflict in Europe with a loser. And right now, Putin looks like a loser, and using nuclear weapons would be a big admission of that. So I think he's not going to use nuclear weapons in the near term. It would be an irrational, totally irrational act. And one thing we've seen about Putin is he may make mistakes, but he's not irrational. Vladimir Putin has opted to avoid general mobilization, probably because he knows how unpopular it would be. But there are many voices on official media now calling for it, or also uh, on the ultra-nationalist right in Russia. Do you think it would make a big difference if there were to be a mass mobilization? I think it could make a difference. And I think that leaders in Ukraine are very conscious that this war could go into 2023 and longer, and what the Russian strategy might be. But they don't have the equipment. The Chinese may have some obsolescent equipment that they could give them. But I think China is going to be wary. Even in 2023, they'll have relatively untrained, unsophisticated forces. So is it worth the risk for Putin to undertake a general mobilization because mighty Russia can't defeat insignificant Ukraine, can he justify that? And can he survive it? He must be wrestling with those questions now. But how difficult do you think it will be for Ukraine to evict Russia pretty much entirely from its territory? And where would it leave Crimea? Because that is the point at which I think even those who are very supportive of Ukraine can take legitimately different views of what the war aim should be. Let's go back and unravel the history for a minute to answer that question. So Mr. Putin's little green men appeared in Crimea. We knew they were Russians, but they had no markings. This is the spring of 2014. And German Chancellor Merkel, backed by the United States, advised the Ukrainian nascent government, led by Anatoly Parabe, to just Turn over Ukraine. Don't provoke Putin. You'll make it worse. Uh, don't get a war started. Uh, be nice. I was there at the end of March 2014, and the Minister of Defense of Ukraine said, well, we, we did what you told us. You told us to give up Crimea. I knew the Russian general from uh, the Cold War, and I called him and said, you can have the equipment. We're leaving. So then we recognized, wait a minute, this is kind of a terrible thing. And so then we put in sanctions. Russia is being sanctioned for its illegal occupation of Crimea. So how then could we have a peace settlement and say, okay, all's forgotten. You invaded Ukraine. You have Crimea illegally, but uh, hey, we really need your gas. So please be nice. No, we're not going to do that. And I don't think when statesmen really think about it, they can't defend such an approach. We have to come together behind a unified position that says, get out. And yet there is an opinion, and this is not only on the, the, the side that wants to defend Russia having Crimea by the means at which it grabbed it in 2014. It thinks that actually that could be a bridge too far. Militarily, you do, as I understand it, think it would be a practical thing to take back Crimea. Just broadly, could you lay that out for us? 
Crimea is just another piece of geography. And if it's not defended, it's no more difficult than Isium. It just requires longer travel. And so it's a question of, you know, the Russian forces and their demoralization and the strength of Ukraine. Could it be taken back? Of course. You don't allow that there is a particular status and strength of opinion, including in Russia, among those who would devoutly wish the war to be over. But maybe public opinion would be much harder to convince of that. As the consequences of this first defeat sink in to the Russian public, and they will, and as Mr. Putin wrestles with it, he has to decide what it is he's going to do. If he's going to persist in this conflict, the West is going to endure a cold winter and Ukraine is going to get stronger. And I would just like to say one other thing about Ukraine. They're not Afghanistan. They're a modern, technologically competent, well-educated country that can produce its own military equipment. They apparently produced a ground-launched sea attack missile that sunk the Moskva cruiser. How long will it be before they produce the longer-range weapons that will destroy Russia's presence in the Crimea. Why should there be such an asymmetry that a Russian bomber can fly over the Caspian Sea and launch a missile a thousand miles away and strike Kyiv, and yet Kyiv is not allowed to strike Crimea? So Mr. Putin has to understand what he's playing with. He's playing with a dangerous situation. This is not in Russia's interest. It needs to be frankly, admitted that it was a mistake. Do you see international backers now doubling down on support for Ukraine? And what would that mean, given that a lot of countries, or European countries, are often saying two things at once. They're saying we're doing as much as we can. And at the same time, they're saying, oh, well, everyone has to be careful about what it is we're actually doing. Does this change the mindset as you would see it? This is the time for an active diplomatic approach by the West. It starts with listening to President Zelensky and listening to our own standards. This is always about more than Ukraine. This is about the rules-based international order. And what we learned in World War II is that you don't allow aggression to go unchecked. If you do, it incentivizes more aggression. So this is the place we've started to draw the line. We need to finish that by saying to Russia, out, out of Donbass, out of Crimea, and then, you know, we can talk. And does out, out of Ukraine, out of Crimea, to your mind, lead the path back to possibly in to NATO? I think it's an excellent question. I think it has to be evaluated in the context of how this is handled diplomatically. You can't really imagine effective security guarantees for Ukraine in the current circumstances beyond membership in NATO. Because if you simply say, well, we promise if they attack again, we'll give you more assistance. That's not a security guarantee. They've already had that. If you say you're not going to be in NATO, but we are going to put U.S. and U.K. forces on the ground to show the Russians they can't attack. What's the point of that? Why would we do that when we could more effectively secure Ukraine's future by giving them membership in NATO? I mean, we've secured Eastern Europe for a long time without putting permanent forces there. So I think, and it has to be evaluated in the context of how this fight ends. If this fight ends with an armistice like North Korea, South Korea, then NATO membership, U.S., U.K. forces, 
French forces, German forces, especially German forces, need to be there indefinitely. If it ends with Mr. Putin making the full accounting, lifting of sanctions, Russia's visas being returned to its oligarchs and so forth, then that's a different circumstance. It's not really thinkable for that scenario to occur with Mr. Putin still in power, though, is it? You know, Mr. Putin's gotten a pass because he's a nuclear state. That doesn't change the rules of the international order, or shouldn't. This is a decisive point in human history. If we stand firm on our principles, we'll have set the path for the peaceful development and the ability of the world to move on to things like tackling the challenges of pandemics and climate change. If we fold our cards because it's a cold winter in Europe or Mr. Putin has talked about a nuclear weapon or something, chaos will ensue. I must ask you this because of your very long experience uh, in the military and in testy geopolitical situations. I know you've just been at a security conference in Kiev, and I wondered when you were listening to Ukrainians talking about how they see the war and the role of the outside actors, if I'd asked you at the end of the Cold War whether you thought this situation would have arisen with Russia and Ukraine, do you think you would have predicted it? The Ukrainians believed this war was coming for a long time. Even when I did my staff talks with the Russians back during the 1990s in Moscow and visits with the top Russian leadership, they always made fun of Ukrainians. Ukrainians were looked down on as a sort of dumb country cousins. And from the Ukrainian perspective, they feel like that they were cheated of their national identity because they were the original Rus. So it's hard for those of us in the West to understand this. But what I did see, and in the Balkans, when I was deeply involved in the 1990s, was the incredible energy and anxiety driven by repeated murders, military wars, loss. It takes four generations, maybe more, to get over seeing your grandparents, seeing their parents killed. It's going to be a long time after this war before Ukraine and Russia can make amends. But I think one thing is clear. If we are able to end the war successfully with diplomacy, we must be involved in Russia in a different way in the West. And we really need to speak to Mr. Putin or his successor and try to explain that the outside world is not hostile to Russia. And we need to move back to an era of harmonious relations based on mutual respect and common interests. But for now, forging new relations is a long way off. Putin is compensating for failure in Ukraine by crushing dissent at home. The Kremlin recently banned Novaya Gazeta, Russia's last independent newspaper. Opposition leader Alexei Navalny continues to languish in jail. But are cracks beginning to show? Criticism is trickling in from those who were once Putin's most ardent supporters. Right-wing nationalists and pro-war bloggers are starting to look for someone to blame. This week on state television, in a divergence from the usual peddling of propaganda, politicians and pundits debated whether it's even possible to win the war. But will that shift in narrative lead to consequences for the man in the Kremlin? 
many Russians are not aware of the situation on the front lines. For them, it's still a special military operation happening somewhere in Ukraine. Alexander Gabuev is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a longtime Russia watcher. The economic impact is palpable on a macro level, but hasn't reached many citizens so far. And then Putin is facing pressure from the right-wing supporters of this war. Some figures argue for a much more robust, aggressive posture against Ukraine. But again, this is mostly a passive following. It's not that these people will go to streets to demand bombardment of Ukrainian civilian infrastructure or nuking Kiev. So, so far, the challenge is pretty manageable for Mr. Putin. And most important, we don't see any meaningful cracks in the elite. We haven't seen them on day one uh, from this uh, terrible war. We are not seeing them now. Let's look at the media in, in Russia and what people are seeing and hearing, albeit, of course, in a very limited way. But there have been voices allowed into TV debates complaining that uh, the war needs to be stepped up or more decisive measures need to be taken or that the strategy isn't working. That certainly wasn't true when I was watching mainstream Russian TV in the first weeks and months of the war. What has changed and does it matter? I think that these shows are most of the time quite scripted. There are people who are allowed to be contrarians or some government critics that will be beaten on air by the pro-regime talking hats. Uh, we are seeing something like that happening now. I wouldn't overestimate the importance of this criticism coming on air because it's not that the Russian public really has a vote on what's likely to happen uh, in Ukraine, whether the Russian forces just go home and retreat or whether Russia steps up pressure. I think that what's happening partly is that we see that the Kremlin is very disoriented. It didn't expect the debacles the way we've seen in the last week. And that's why the messaging on the TV is also not that clear cut. So people have more room to play and there is more room for debate. But again, I wouldn't overestimate the impact of this on the actual events on the ground in Ukraine. Something else that caught my eye were those resignation letters by municipal deputies, uh, notably in St. Petersburg, of course, the old power base from which Vladimir Putin wrote an open letter, which was published on Monday, calling for him to step down. Now, I'm sure you're going to tell me this is at the margins of a political significance in Russia and, and the grip that the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin himself has on the system. But what do you read into it and what do you think is pushing that into the public domain at the moment? I think that the perception that all of the Russians are supporting the special military operation is just wrong. Terrific research that my Carnegie colleagues have done, Andrei Kolesnikov and Denis Volkov from Levada Center, the only independent polling company in Russia, shows that there are 20% of people who might support this war. There are 60 people in between who are trying to look away. And there are about 20% of people who are very much opposed to this war. The risk of voicing your opposition and the price that you're going to pay for this has been ratcheted up by the Kremlin from day one. So you may end up in prison very quickly for criticizing the war. 
But the examples like the one where you provide shows that there are still some brave people who would try to risk protesting this war in a broad daylight, knowing what the consequences could be. That doesn't change the overall picture. Putin has ability to wage this brutal war because he taps into deep wells of Russia's society, atomization, passivity, and fear. There's a section of very vocal opinion pushing Mr. Putin to escalate the war, even going as far as to call for nuclear weapons to be used against Ukraine. How seriously do you think he is considering escalation? And and where do you stand on that very tricky question of how he himself would see the option of going nuclear? I think that the escalation is likely. His problem is that there are not that many efficient tools to escalate. We've seen bombardment of Ukrainian critical civilian infrastructure, the power stations, uh, the grid system as a retaliation for Ukrainian military successes. We might see more of that. Russia's problem is that Ukrainian air defense is quite capable. So Russia was not really able to use its air force to maximum efficiency, both on the battleground and in targeting Ukrainian infrastructure. Russia's high-precision missiles are also numbered, so you don't want to spare them on some non-priority targets. When it comes to nukes, that's the tool of last resort, and I don't think that he will use that unless the real red lines are being tested. To me, these red lines is uh, a serious attempt to retake Crimea, which is Putin's legacy, which is by the definition of Russian law, part of Russian territory, and which gives you legal justification, again, from the Russian viewpoint, to use nuclear weapon in defending the home country. There's a core of right-wing nationalists who are making their views felt on what they see as military humiliation. They blame Russia's generals. They blame, in part, Mr. Putin himself. Uh, I'm just giving an example here of the Kremlin-appointed leader of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, who said that the Russian army needs to change its strategy. I suppose it's a mild challenge to what you were saying earlier, that there is an inner circle which feels like an iron core, but you can feel some elements perhaps chipping away at that. I think that there is a lot of positioning inside the elite and some people like Ramzan Kadyrov want to portray themselves to the boss, that they are highly capable, they need to get more resources, they know what to do about this war. It is a problem for Mr. Putin, but I don't think that it's a problem that he cannot manage. The real problem is that, yes, with all of the major blunders and mistakes uh, being made by the Russian military, it exposes some long-term problems in the Russian attempt to modernize its military, but it also shows that they don't have this genius generals and changing one general for another doesn't really resolve your problems. I suppose you could say this is the way it has been since Vladimir Putin was able to consolidate pretty much absolute power in Russia. A number of these questions you've said, well, no, he's, he's still got it nailed, really. He's got, he's got it tied down and it would take something bigger to shift for what's happening in Ukraine to affect Putin. But if I could just ask you to kind of flip your thinking for a moment, what do you think it would take then if all of these factors are not really bothering him? What might move the dial against the regime? 
I think that if there is a major economic shock that I don't see in the cards for now, but uh, it might happen if the West is introducing the oil embargo, the uh, sanctions on ensuring Russian vessels are really helpful, and then the revenue stream available to the Kremlin boils down to the gas and oil pipeline to China that don't give much. So there might be some shocks one year from now that will lead to kind of local rebellions, big demonstrations that the Kremlin will not have enough force to quell. But again, I think that this is not very likely for now. The elites cracks would be something that would make most sense. But this would be powerful if these are cracks among the so-called silovics, so the people who control large armed bureaucracies like the army, the FSB, police. And so far, all of these people have been part of the problem. They have been part of Putin's war cabinet, and they have been part of the preparation for war against Ukraine. So it's very unlikely that any of them would risk to challenge Mr. Putin because the demise of the regime might well mean end of them as well. Publicly, Putin is carrying on as normal as Ukraine was regaining its territory. He was busy opening a Ferris wheel in Moscow. When you see him out and about, what do you observe? I think that there is a high degree of confusion. Uh, He obviously didn't expect things to collapse so rapidly. We also don't know what kind of picture uh, he is getting. Of course, he knows that by now Ukraine has returned control over Kharkiv that uh, situation in the south in Kherson doesn't look good for the Russian forces. But how much he is aware that these are just results of deep flaws in the way that Russia was preparing for this war is unclear. So it's unclear how much he understands the gravity of the situation for the narrow military purpose of occupying these parts of Ukraine. It is unlikely that Mr. Putin will step down in short order, although... If one were to make a historic bet, it often that it happens quickly and more often than not by something like an internal move or a coup that was probably not predicted the week before it happened in some cases. Do you get any sense of what might replace him as and when it ever happens? I think that indeed a lot depends on the timing of Mr. Putin's departure. I think that immediately the most powerful people around him will be those who are controlling these large organizations of armed men, the Minister of Defense, Shaigu, head of the FSB, Bortnikov, head of the National Security Council, Patrushev. The person who will have legitimacy once Mr. Putin departs is Prime Minister Mishustin, but he doesn't have his own political base. So agreement between these men is important. We know that there are multiple contradictions. Uh, They don't like each other, and that's part of the way uh, Putin rules, so divide and rule. But they might understand that if they start fighting each other, that might be the end of the system as we know it. So a collective body with a successor that's put out there as a new civilian ruler, an election that's managed, might be the plan. But again, we never know how this plan will work in reality because Mr. Putin has a very unique sense of uh, legitimacy right now in Russia. If he departs the stage, it's very hard to predict what will happen 
even if there is a ruling junta that governs as a unified body without too many contradictions. The other scenario means that these guys will be at each other's throat with a knife the minute Mr. Putin drops dead. I wonder, as you look at Ukraine and you see that it's defying expectations militarily, does it turn your mind to what a defeated Russia might look like? We need to define defeat. I think that liberation of Ukrainian territory minus Crimea looks increasingly feasible. But again, we are in a very early stage of this counteroffensive. There are some undeniable Ukrainian gains and there are some strength of the Ukrainian army and the way Ukrainian army works with its Western supporters that are very visible. But we'll see how much that is advancing. I think that Crimea is really the bottleneck here because the risk of Russia using tactical news is not zero. But we know that there are regimes who have lost these wars and they carry on. Saddam was not successful in its war against Iran. He definitely was badly beaten during Desert Storm. And it took more than two decades and it took also the U.S. invasion to destroy Saddam's regime. So the regime can quite look like Saddam's Iraq after Desert Storm. Alexander Gabuev, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Pleasure. It was great to be with you. My thanks also to General Wesley Clark. And do let us know what you think. Is this a turning point for Ukraine? And how should that inform the West's response? Write to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. This week, we report in depth on Ukraine's counteroffensive and what that means for Russia and for Vladimir Putin. Head to our website to read that. There, you'll also be able to read our reporting on the death of Queen Elizabeth II. As Britain says farewell to the late monarch, we look at what will come from the reign of King Charles III. If you're not a subscriber already, then why not sign up today? We've got a special introductory offer for our podcast listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling-Condon and the executive producer, Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.